Uh, we're continuing on with the series, but before I get to today's sermon, there is something that I forgot to mention last week. And for those of you who may have missed it, it's all online. I'm not going to rehash, but we were talking about the fact that we really should not accept Christianity as a hand-me-down religion. We should have a reason to be Christians. And I went through um, all the things I thought weren't good reasons, and I went through my reasoning. By the way, that doesn't have to be your reasoning. It's just I went through my reasoning for why I'm a Christian. Uh, but there was one thing I didn't mention last week that actually I should have, because there's one very good reason to be a Christian that some of you may have that I just don't. But if you had what I call a chance encounter with Jesus Christ, this is like you hit the end of your rope, uh, you know, rock bottom, and you cry out to God and he answered you, and that's how you met Jesus. That's a great reason to be a Christian. I, you know, that's, that's called a testimony, and a testimony is better than theology. What I gave you last week was theology. That's a testimony, and that's better. So if that's your reasoning, stick to it. In fact, know that God gave you the testimony to share so practice it and get ready to tell people because it's a very good reason that you cried out, God answered, and you've you know, followed him ever since. That's a wonderful reason. So I just want to kind of tie up that loose end, very loose end that was sitting out there. This week, uh, now that we've established, give you what we've been through so far, we're on uh, week number eight now. We decided in the, in the past weeks that uh, the Bible is the true word of God. There is a God. He is good. He is moral. He loves you. And uh, there's only one God, and there's only one true religion, and Christianity is it. So if you guys missed the earlier sermons, that's what you've missed. We walked through that. Now that we've gotten here, I want to talk about God. And as I said earlier, um, you know, get ready, because the Bible says we'll be learning about God for the rest of our lives. Uh, and you, you, I don't know if you think that's boring or not, but if you think that's boring, you don't know anything about God, because he is amazing. And we're going to be spending eternity just trying to understand everything about him. And that's what we're going to be doing. That's one of the things we're going to be doing. So uh, I'm going to start at the very beginning. We're not going to get that far. Uh, we're going to just kind of start at the very beginning. And let me ask a question that maybe some of you know the answer to. What is the most defining characteristic of God? Now, I've preached on this before, so if you know the answer, don't shout it out. It's okay to look smug. You can sit there and look smug, but don't shout it out. Let everybody else kind of think through this a little bit. What is the most defining characteristic of God? In other words, if there's a DNA for God, and we don't know if there is, if there is, what would be the God gene? What would be the one thing that if you have this, you can be God? And if you don't have this, you just can't be God. Now, we, picked a, we went through a lot of things we talked about God uh, over the past you know, several weeks. You know, he's, he's moral, he's intelligent, he's patient, he's wise. All these things are any of these which you would say is the most defining characteristic. Usually when I ask that question to give you the answer I get most, it's love. Well, God is love. The most defining thing about God is his love. And I'm going to tell you that's not it. In fact, it's none of these. And the reason that it's not it is because all of these things, since you're made in the, creative, in, in the image of God, all these things you have the capacity to do and the capacity to be. Now, we don't do as good a job of it as God, you know, this long-suffering one. And I keep reminding myself of that one every time I'm in the Walmart line. But, uh, you know, so, you know, I, I understand that we don't do as good a job about this as God does, but uh, we do have the capacity to do this. I'm talking about something that's uniquely God that he, that you aren't, and that nothing is. And the answer is this, uh, for those of you who haven't heard this before, he's uncreated. This is the single most characteristic quality of God. This makes God God, because there's nothing else like him in the universe. This is the God gene. If there is one, this is it. He's uncreated. And to show you this, I'm going to take you back to a very familiar scripture, which I know everybody's heard. You don't even have to be a Christian to know this. I'm going to take you to five words in the Bible. Not even a full verse. Five words of a verse in the Bible. 
that probably is the most astounding five words in literature. And it's this, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. Now, if that's never blown your minds because you've never taken a moment to think about that, how in the world can that even happen? Now, I don't know if this is still done in schools, but when I was in school, we had these things called number lines or timelines. I don't know if you ever have those. And it's like, if you had to do a report, like we'd be on some section in our history book, you know, and if we ever had to do a report, um, you know, they, they would say, okay, now you need a report that this number line they, you know, give you. So suppose, and I don't think you can actually read this, but suppose you have a number line or a timeline of the American Revolution, right? And your report's on George Washington, and so you would stand up there and you'd have, you know, nervous because you're shaking and you got these little notes and things. And you would point with a squeaky voice at the timeline and you'd say, in 1776, George Washington was training the troops, you know, or something. Uh, and then you would kind of keep moving through your report and you keep pointing to different areas on a timeline. All right, now suppose some joker uh, before your report swapped out the American Revolution timeline with the Christopher Columbus timeline. And you stand up there with your notes and you look at it and you say, in 1492, George Washington, what? I mean, what comes next? I don't know what a creative you know, third grader's mind would come up with, but I'll tell you what doesn't come next, a verb. Because George Washington isn't there. He can't do anything at that point. He doesn't exist yet. His mama doesn't exist. His grandma doesn't exist yet. He's just not there. There's nothing George Washington can do in 1492. He just can't. He's not there. The Bible, though, says, well, we're going to start at the very beginning. We're going to take you back to the beginning of time, year zero. And it said, in year zero, God created. How? How did he do that? I mean, he's not just there. He's full part. He's creating at this point, year zero. Before the beginning, there is God. The answer is God has no beginning. Not that we, have, we could even describe. God has no beginning. In fact, the psalmist puts it like this. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting. Did you know you're everlasting? You are. You are everlasting. You were created and you will live forever, somewhere. You're everlasting. Angels everlasting, as far as we know. But God, like if you, you know, you have a number line, you know, like, like this one here, where we have the beginning of the world and an arrow pointing to the right. Gods would have an arrow pointing to the right and an arrow pointing to the left with no dots no beginning of God. He is everlasting to everlasting. He has no beginning and no ending. And there's flat out nothing like him in the universe. And that's why our God is God. Because every other God is false because it's created. I met a Wiccan yesterday uh, or day before at Macy's. It's amazing what you run into. And I knew that because she had a t-shirt on. Um, Wiccan witches do it better. I don't know what they do better, but she had a t-shirt that said she does it better. Uh, so you, you, you can't help but ask a question in these situations, and we didn't talk very long, but I wanted to make sure I understood their religion. You know, they worship Mother Earth. I said, well, my God created your God, so I don't know what kind of God you have. You know, <laughs> you're Earth. And I said, oh, by the way, just so you know, I don't know if you noticed this, the Earth is dying. <laughs> so your God has a beginning and is going to end. My God created everything. It has no end, so I don't know what you're doing better than me, but picking gods clearly isn't it, you know? And every other god that you can point to in the universe is like that. Everybody else has a beginning. It's only, only our god goes from everlasting to everlasting. This thing keeps cutting out on me, I'm sorry. So anyway, um, so that, that makes him unlike anything else. You can't compare him to, you can't say, well, God's kind of like the sun, but brighter, Egypt, who worshiped the sun, because he's not like the sun. The sun was created. You couldn't even say that yin and yang is right. 
You know, the Buddhists, there's, there's evil in the world, there's good in the world, and they balance each other out. No, they don't. No, they don't. Because Satan doesn't balance out God. Satan was created. God was not. In the spiritual world, by the way, older is more powerful because they don't wear out. They're not like us. They're not physical. So the older you are, the more powerful you are. You've learned more. You've learned how to do more. You're wiser. You know, this is why demons shouldn't be trifled with. You need Jesus' blood to deal with that. You need something more powerful than you because they've been around a long time. They've been around a long time. Thousands and thousands of years at the very least. Okay, so there is nothing like God in the entire universe. Oh, wait a minute. Yes, there is. Yes, there is, because the Bible tells us this. Later on, it says, the earth was formless and void. He starts describing how he creates. And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface. The Holy Spirit was there at the beginning as well. God the Creator is there. So is the Holy Spirit. They both are different people, persons, but they share the same God gene. So they're both God. Different, but the same. Now, if we know the Holy Spirit was there and we know the Father was there, what about Jesus Christ? Well, if we jump up in the New Testament, John says this, in the beginning, back the same spot, there was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And I know sometimes the Bible seems to talk and double talk. It's not. It's drawing underlines under all these words so you can't miss what it's saying. Here's what you need to know. Jesus was there at the beginning. He was God, and he was part of the creation process. Jesus was there at the beginning. The Father's there in the beginning. The Holy Spirit's there in the beginning. Three completely distinct and different persons all share the same God gene because they are all uncreated. This is something we call the Trinity. Now, this is an important concept that only Christians believe. We're the only ones. Uh, everybody different things. Even, even Judaism comes out on this a little bit. One of the reasons why they missed Jesus when he came was they, they thought the Messiah was a person, a human. They missed the fact that actually God himself was coming. So that's part of the reason that they missed that. Okay, uh, so, uh, and we, we know that uh, Jesus was there, the three persons are all God. So I'm going to focus today on just one part of the Trinity, which is God the Father. Or you might actually say he's the God of the Old Testament. You hear him called that. Like, that's the only place he shows up. Uh, but that's actually what some people say. Oh, he's God of the Old Testament. Okay, so he does, a writer would say, dominate the story. He, he drives the narrative forward. So God is certainly in a very important part of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is pretty much God created the world. He created his creation. His creation turned on him. The entire rest of the Old Testament, he's trying to get him back. And you know, that's kind of the Old Testament. So it is a dominated uh, by the presence of God. But he's not alone. The Holy Spirit does show up in the Old Testament. I don't know if you knew that. The Spirit of the Lord descends upon Samson and gives him supernatural strength. The, the Holy Spirit falls upon Saul when he becomes king and he speaks in tongues. The Holy Spirit falls and stays on David. Uh, all his days. So the Holy Spirit does show up. We see Jesus Christ show up in the Old Testament as well. Uh, he's not named Jesus at that point, but we will see it. Uh, most people believe that in the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story, when they're thrown in the fiery furnace, the fourth person was Jesus. Um, sometimes uh, he's referred to as the angel. Uh, but especially in the story of Elijah, when Elijah goes into the cave, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. I believe Jesus Christ himself shows up there to talk to him. So they show up, but really the Old Testament's dominated by God the Father, God the Creator. When we get to the New Testament, all our focus goes on the God who comes here, Jesus Christ, you know, who comes and becomes flesh and dwells among us. But if you look at Jesus' focus, it's still on the Father. 
Jesus' entire focus is still on the Father. So this is all working together. Uh, and so I thought, okay, we don't have enough time to go through everything about God. Clearly, that'll take millions of years. I don't even have that much time. So what can we do to kind of, what's the essential part that we can deal with right now and then move on? And I thought, well, I'll go to Jesus Christ because he knows what's important that we need to know about the Father because he already kind of edits it. He knows everything about God, but he only taught us about certain things about God. But then I looked at that, and that's a huge sermon too. That's like a series. And I only have a little bit of time. So I thought, God, give me one area of the Bible that shows us the kind of really just the essential things we need to know about you. We really need to know these things. And he took me to the area of the Bible that surprised me. I actually rebelled against it a couple of times. I thought, that can't be right. And so I'm kind of trying to pray about other things that kept coming back to it. Um, and I thought, okay, let me go look at this again. Now, this is an area of scripture that you all know. Promise you to promise you that you knew this before you ever walked in a spirit chapel because this is a famous area of scripture. The Protestants have a name for it and the Catholics have a name for it. Protestants call it the Lord's Prayer. The Catholics call it the Our Father. And you wouldn't think that this would be the characteristics of God, but actually what Jesus is doing is he's showing us how to pray to his Father and everything he's showing us is a characteristic of God we need to know about. So I'm going to use this as kind of a, a lens to uh, take a look at it. So we all know this. I'm going to read it once. I'm not going to read it in the King James, which is probably how most of you learned it, like me. Um, I actually learned this in school, believe it or not, they still had it then. Um, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth that it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Now these next two lines, if we like all just kind of, if I didn't put this up, I'd just say, hey, let's recite the Lord's Prayer. I could listen and I could tell by what you said next you came from. Because <clears throat> every denomination seems to have a different word that they use for this. Just a second. I've changed it to this kind of more generic thing here. <clears throat> and forgive us our sins as we've also forgiven those who sin against us. That's really what it means. I was raised Presbyterian. We use the words debts there because a Presbyterian would rather have his debts forgiven than anything. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, good Presbyterians. But um, you, you may have heard trespasses, uh, other things there. But really, the, the term there is sins. So forgive us our sins as we've also forgiven those who sin against us. <clears throat> Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver evil. Now, there is an ending that comes up to this that some of you may know. Uh, it's not part of the oldest scriptures we found. So the suspicion is that maybe a monk added it later. It's a cool part. That's why for thou is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. That doesn't show up in the earliest documents. So we don't know if <clears throat> Jesus actually said that or someone just got carried away. You know, their pen couldn't stop. Uh, so I'm going to stop there. But I'm going to come back now. I'm going to di dissect this prayer because Jesus, let me set this up for you. He's just criticized everybody, all the religious greats, the who's who of the religious world. He's just criticized them all and said, they don't even pray right. They pray like heathens. That kind of rocks people, right? And so the disciples, I love how they do this. They kind of wait till everybody's kind of gone, um, Jesus, we don't know how to pray either. You know, could you teach us to pray? And he says, sure. So he sits down. He says, I'm going to teach you how to pray. So this is cool because this is Jesus Christ. Nobody knows how to pray better than him. He does it better than anybody else. He's going to sit down now, and the people he loves the most and is closest to, I'm going to teach you how to pray. Like, whoa, for once, they actually recorded it. You know, a lot of times he had these really great conversations we don't get to hear, but we get to hear this one. And so then he begins to pray. Now, here's what you have to be a scholar to know. You wouldn't know this to look at your Bible, but if you read on the way the, the brilliant work of the translators have been done, we know something about how Jesus prayed first and foremost. He prayed in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. And the reason they know that is because of the way early documents were written. So they know that Jesus, in this case, spoke in Aramaic. That, by the way, would have blown them away. Now, I don't know if the fishermen 
knew or the carpenters. But I promise you when the apostle Paul heard, he went, wait, what? He prayed in Aramaic. Because let me tell you about Aramaic. Uh, Aramaic is the common tongue of the day. It's the street language almost. It's kind of a mishmash of a bunch of languages. It's what they use to do trading in the marketplace. Now I'm saying Aramaic, and some of you may think I'm saying Arabic, but I'm not. It's Aramaic, completely different languages, not Arabic. And, and so it was a common language of the day. What Jesus Christ does is he blows apart a thousand years of tradition, at least. If you went into the temple in those days, even though by that time they were all kind of speaking Greek and they already had the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of, of the Old Testament, even though they had that, uh, those people would still pray in Hebrew because the rabbi would lead them, right? And they would have about 16, 17 different prayers in a prayer book that were memorized and they would pray out loud and it was Hebrew. And the people would go along with it and they don't really know what they're saying, kind of like when we sang El Shaddai. <laughs> it's like, I think it's good, you know, El Shaddai. Don't know what it means, but I'll say it, right? So they would do it anyway. That's kind of how it worked. Have, have any of you, some of you uh, former Catholics, uh, have you ever been to a Latin mass? You know, where everybody's in English and all of a sudden, like, what's that? I don't know. Let's just go with it. You know, it's holy because it's Latin, you know, whatever. Uh, I attended a Russian Orthodox uh, Easter once. Uh, I was in a choir loft. And my girlfriend at the time, this was a long time ago, my girlfriend was sang in a choir and I was up there. It was a four-hour service. Thank God I was in a choir loft because in between each song, they would sit there and talk and gossip until they went back to do their next song. And they were singing in Russian, you know. And I'd say, what does that mean? And no one in the choir loft could tell me. They sang it beautifully, but none of them had any idea what was being said. Uh, so anyway, but that's how it works. And that's how it worked then too. They would pray these prayers and they were always in Hebrew. And uh, when he prayed in Aramaic, he blew apart thousands of years of tradition because what he was saying was there isn't one language to use to speak to your heavenly father. By the way, that's not true of Allah. Just, I don't know if you knew this, you can only pray to Allah in Arabic. Uh, now, recently I understand, I'm, I'm not making this up. This is not made up. Recently I understand that Allah got a translator, a monk, an Armenian monk, who speaks all languages of the world, so now I guess you can speak to the monk and he'll translate to Allah. Allah only hears Arabic. I'm not kidding you. Now, almost every religion has its own language. But Jesus Christ says, I don't. Now, Jesus Christ, being the word, would have spoken every language fluently. He could have prayed in Swahili if he had wanted to. He could have. But he chose Aramaic because he's trying to tell them, look, it doesn't matter what language you speak to God in. That's, that's not important. So that really blew it away. The next thing he does is by what he starts his prayer with, he blows their minds. Because he's going to use an Aramaic word that really is surprising. Now, um, we know this prayer is the Our Father, right? Because that's how our book translates it. But it's really not an accurate translation of what Jesus says next because what he says is Abba. Now, Abba is not just a rock group from the 80s. Abba is actually a very well-known Aramaic, and a lot of different languages uses this term. This is a term for daddy. Like if Peter came home from fishing and his little girl comes running up to him, three years old, she would raise her arms and she'd shout, Abba, Abba. It's like one of the very first words that uh, those, the mothers would teach their babies, like mama, dada, uh, Abba. That's, that's what they teach the babies to say. So now I, I've read a lot of stuff on this because this really bothers theologians today to look at that and say, he did not say daddy. He did not. He couldn't have said, we're going to start the prayer by saying daddy, you know, and, and, uh, and so they, there's no way. And so they really, uh, I've, I've read treaties that said this can't be true. Uh, it is true, actually. Now, it is also true that sometimes Abba was used as a term of respect for a teacher. Be, like, like uh, now you'll notice Jesus' disciples never do. 
but uh, some rabbis of the day or something, if somebody had been with them for so long, they would not refer to him, if they were really close to him, they wouldn't refer to him as rabbi, they would refer to him as Abba. What they were saying is, you're like my spiritual father. You know, it was, it was a term of respect, but it was very rare. And, th- and this is never used again in that way. Uh, Jesus uses it all the time when he's talking to his father, by the way. And the disciples picked up on it. And uh, you'll even see it in Greek translation notes, like the Greeks who are writing it. They'll write a pater, which is your Greek for father, but in parentheses, they'll put Abba. <laughs> this is how I'm translating it, but what Jesus really said there, believe it or not, is Abba, dad, dad. The most common term you can imagine, because when you have a dad, you're intimate with them, right? You know them so well. And I, I will apologize right now, because I know some people who come here didn't have a good dad or didn't have a dad at all. Uh, and I apologize for that. You were supposed to, according to God's plan, you're supposed to. Things go wrong sometimes. But if you've had a good dad, you know what that's like. You know, no matter how busy he is, no matter what's going on, you can walk into his presence. If you really need to talk to him and say, hey, dad, he always made time for you, right? And that's the good father that we want. And that's what, that's what Jesus is saying. You're going to walk in the throne room of the high king of heaven. And he's going to put down the golden scepter and say, hey, come here. Jump on my lap. What do you need? You know, that's, that's what he's saying. You're approaching your dad. And that's a whole different way of looking at God, I think, than most of us do. But he also adds this in heaven. He's in heaven, which means he's close to us emotionally, physically, emotionally and spiritually, but he's not close to us physically. He's apart from us physically, but he's close to us. Now, we know what this is like, right? We've all had loved ones who aren't with us. Maybe they'll never be with us again, or maybe they've moved Maybe they got married and moved out or whatever, went off to college. But we have loved ones that we no longer can talk to. Like we, they were not physically there, but boy, we're still there connected, right? This is what Jesus is saying. You're supposed to have this kind of connection with God. Now, my wife, I don't know if you guys knew this, but uh, she was a bit of a daddy's girl growing up. And uh, that continued on as she got married. And she told me that when she uh, was, this is before I knew her, of course, but when she was in Ukraine, had little baby Stas, and uh, she went back to work, and she went to work. She would call her dad, what, three, four times a day? At work, all right? So what'd you guys talk about? Nothing. You know, just, how you doing? Doing good. What's changed? Uh, I finished that paragraph that I was reading since the last time we talked, you know? And, okay, and, you know, they'd talk a little bit, and they'd hang up three, four times. Why'd you do that? Because she just wanted to hear his voice, right? Sometimes when you're really kind of in that kind of a bind, and you kind of feel, boy, just to hear the voice of dad, speaking to you, you know, sometimes calm you down, you know, and it's like, ah, just to hear his voice. There are mothers here, uh, and I'm not going to call you out because I don't think this is a bad thing, but I can promise you there are mothers here who have a voicemail on their phone from their kid, and it might be, I don't know, year old, two years old. It was a stupid voicemail. Maybe it meant nothing, but the mother can't bring herself to delete it. You know why? Because every now and then she opens it up and plays it and listens to it because she just wants to hear her kid's voice. Right? This longing to connect with somebody who's not with us, but we're close to, is what Jesus Christ is describing, dad in heaven. That's what he's saying. So then he goes on. Now, the next thing is really astounding to me. I mean, really, when I read it, I thought, God, I don't understand this. Because when I'm starting to get this picture, what Jesus is describing of walking into the throne room of heaven and him like, hey, you know, hey, what's going on? I'm, I'm so glad you stopped by. I want to talk to you. And now the next thing, the next line is amazing because the next line in the, in the Lord's Prayer is, hallowed be your name. That's just weird on every level, right? Because we don't use the word hallowed 
that's like a weird word now. Hallowed be your name. What you're saying is, you are great and you're holy. This is almost like an envoy would say to a king. Oh, great king, may your name live forever. That's pretty much the idea of this. Now, I want you to see this juxtaposition here that Jesus just did, the balance between the fact he is our dad, but he is also our king. And you love your father, but you respect the position. When you walk in the throne room of God, you don't take that lightly. You know he's the high king of heaven. And the only reason you're standing here is because he's your dad. But you don't stand on that. You don't presume upon that. You treat the high king of heaven with the respect that the high king of heaven deserves. Not because he's going to blast you with a lightning bolt if you don't, but because you love and respect him. And this is what Jesus is showing us. And I'm telling you something. I've been a Christian for a long time. That balance is usually not kept. I find people go one way or the other. Either they don't really believe that God is their dad. You know, he's our father, but our, our father, which is like a special father, right? And so I really can't approach him. And so you'll, you'll meet people and they'll be like, say, could you pray for me? Now, listen, we're a church. We'll pray for you. But I'm not going to pray for you if you're not praying. I just want to let you know right now. If you're saying, I want you to pray for me instead of me, I'm out. Because there's no sense in me going to God with that. Because if God says anything to me, he's going to say, tell them to come to me my, themselves. That's what God's going to tell me. Because you need to be there. If you want more prayer to come alongside you, that's different. But don't tell me to pray instead of you. That's not who we are at this church. You go to your dad yourself. You don't need me to speak to your dad for you. But some people think they do. And you'll know these people because they'll never say their own words in a prayer. Either they have a whole prayer memorized or they read it off a card or they have whole phrases memorized they string together that they for other people say they won't say their own words because they don't think those will be acceptable to the Father. So what they do is they use other people's or they ask other people to pray for them or some of them, and you know what I'm talking about, will pray to somebody else to pray for them. Like a saint. I really can't come to God myself so I'll speak to St. Christopher instead. He'll talk to him. I'll speak to Mother Mary. She'll talk to him. I can't go to God directly. That person doesn't have the idea that God is their father. Uh, the other side of it, to me, is just as bad, and I see that a lot as well, and that's somebody who doesn't know God is king, and so they walk in the throne room of heaven and make demands. I've heard some people pray some prayers, and I almost want to back out of the prayer circle. Like, whoa, when the lightning strikes, I want to be nowhere around here. Because I can't believe you just walked in the high king of heaven and named and claimed anything. What are you doing? What are you doing claiming your rights to the high king of heaven? I, I just, it just really blows me away how we walk into this in either this casual, like I don't care about anything, or just like, you know, I'll, I'll tell God what to give me. I'm not going to ask. I'll tell him what to give me. He's the high king of heaven. Jesus Christ himself said you don't do that. You walk in and say, our heavenly father, hallowed and glorious be your name. You are holy and you are good. And so the next part, now remember, and let's be honest, why do you go to the Lord in prayer? Because we want to ask him for something, right? I mean, come on. I mean, 99% of the time or 90, maybe, maybe you guys are just more righteous than me. Maybe, oh no, pastor, we never do that. That's why I go to God. I usually go to God because I have things in my mind. I have concerns. I want to ask him for things. We call them petition prayers. Basically, it's God's to-do list. Here's what I need you to do for me today, God. Prove to me one more time you love me. And so we go in there. But, and, and we're going to get to the petition part of this prayer, but I want to show you where Jesus sticks it because <laughs> we're not there yet. So we start in with this whole thing. We go on with he's holy. And then he says something that I never understood. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
what does that even mean? I always thought he was saying, you know, someday Jesus will be back and the kingdom will come. But that can't be what Jesus means because Jesus is praying it, A. B, this is a daily prayer. He's saying daily pray this prayer, at least daily. And we know that because of the lines coming up. We know this is daily prayer. He can't be saying, you know, this is a someday thing. What he's saying is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Who's praying this? You are. Who are you praying it to? God. What are you saying? I am here to make sure the kingdom of God moves forward on earth. I am here to see that God's will is done on earth. Me. That's who. Here I am, Lord. Send me. That's what we're saying. No matter what else comes after this prayer, God, I want you to know, more than anything else, I am here to do the will of the Father. What do you want? This is actually a little bit of what's guidance. What do you want me to do? Because we also recognize that God is good and God is wise and whatever he wants is better than what I want. I came with my ideas, God, but I know yours are better. Before I get to what I've come up with, I want to hear what you come up with. I am here to do the will of the Father. That's what I'm here for. Not my will, your will. We see Jesus Christ use this very same phrase practically later in his life. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw away. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knelt down and began to pray and and they got close up, they heard him say this, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Which is the very same thing he's saying here. Your will be done. On earth, as it is in heaven. How's God's will done in heaven? Instantly, immediately, and without question. How should his will be done here on earth? Same way. So before we get to anything else, we're there. So we're basically saying, God, I want you to lead me because your plan is more important and better than my plan. This is an attitude. I want you to see the attitude that we're approaching God. And the reason why Jesus is saying you need this attitude is you have to remember who he is. If you come before the Lord with the right attitude, your experience in prayer is going to be much better than you come to him with the wrong attitude. And then we finally get to what we came for. Give us this day our daily bread. This is your petition. This is what you need. God, you know what I need. And you tell him. And he's okay with that. He wants you to come to him. He does. Jehovah Jireh, which means God will provide, is one of the very first things God teaches us. He spent years teaching me Jehovah Jireh. In fact, I honestly believe that until you learn Jehovah Jireh, you really can't grow and move on in the Lord. And the reason is because as long as you're looking to someone else for your provision, there are your God. Until you look to God for your provision, if you're looking to the government, for your provision, if you're looking at your bank account, if you're looking for a better job, if something else is going to make your life better and you're looking at that something, then that something is your God. Because I need that something to come through for me in order to make my life better. What Jesus is saying is you come to God first and then you come to him and say, I have needs. And he says, yeah, God knows that you have needs. In fact, he says this, when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetitions like the pagans. They suppose they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Think God doesn't know how much money you have in your bank account? How much food you have in a pantry? You think God isn't aware of this? He knows. He says, come to me. I'll provide Jehovah Jireh. I'll take care of you. 
I will provide. He wants us to come to him. There's nothing wrong with bringing petitions to, to, to the Lord in prayer. And there's certainly some petitions that we're required to bring to him. We're supposed to pray for the salvation of others? Absolutely. We're supposed to pray for our leaders? Absolutely. We're told to do these things. That's all part of the petition. But even that, even those good things, I'm praying for salvation for you know, some relative of mine, even the good thing comes after the attitude is set right. We walk into God's presence knowing who we walk into the presence of. And then finally, we get to this part, which we wish he would leave out. Oh, by the way, you know, it's funny to me, he puts this, so I would put this first. I actually prayed about that. I said, God, why isn't this first? I don't understand. This seems to me like you need to be sanctified before you can even come in God's presence. And God says, I know you're not sanctified. I make you sanctified. It's okay. But if you don't walk into God's presence with the right attitude, then everything else doesn't matter. That's why he puts it all the way down here. Forgive us our sins as we've forgiven those who sin against us. Now, here's what's interesting. We like the first part of that sentence, and we completely ignore the second part of that sentence. But here's what Jesus is telling us. God is merciful, but he's also just. He's both. He's merciful, and he's going to forgive your sins, even though you don't deserve it. But in recognition of that, our response is we forgive others for what they do to us. Because God says, I need you to be more like me. And do you see what I just did here? I forgave you. So why are you holding that grudge against them? See what I'm doing? See what you're not doing? Right? There's mercy and there's justice. And if, if you think I'm making too big a deal of a couple words here, Jesus talks about this all the time. And he says this, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not will not, will not forgive your sins. I did the Bible there. I repeated it three times. I'm drawing a line on it because sometimes we think we get away with that. Yeah, I know. I know what he said, but I'm not going to do that. Will not. God said, I'm going to forgive your sins because I'm merciful, but I'm merciful and I'm also just. You will also forgive sins in recognition of what I've done for you. Sorry, God, I just can't forgive them. But what are you telling me then? Are you telling me? Because what you said in your prayer, if you remember, what you said in your prayer was that we are going to forgive our sins the same way that you, you forgive us the same way we forgive others. That's what we're saying. The same way, the very same way. God says, okay, that's what you asked for, that's what I'm doing, but you didn't forgive, so what are you telling me to do? We have to learn how to forgive. It is like the most essential, critical thing of being a Christian. I'm not saying it's easy. I have jerks in my life too. I get it. And sometimes I have to ask for God's help on this. Thank God he's merciful. You know, sometimes we, we're going to need that. But we have to understand that this is part of who God is. He's merciful and we love his mercy, but he's also just. Be careful praying for justice. You never know. God might give it to you. And then finally he ends up by saying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now when we think of evil, we want to say God is our protector. And when I'm thinking evil, I'm thinking evil things happening to me. God, you know, like, like the pagans with their little, you know, warding off evil symbols and stuff. You know, for, 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 protect me from evil, God. You know, you know, put a cross on me, I ward off vampires or whatever. You know, there's this, all this stuff. I want protection from evil, I want protection from evil. But God is a protector not just from evil things happening to us. He's a protector from evil things we're going to do. And this prayer is covering both. Lead us not in temptation. Deliver us from evil. I don't want to just be delivered from the evil happening to me. I don't want to create evil in the world. 
I don't want to do evil. Help me, Lord. Keep me from that. And that's what this prayer is actually saying. Both. We're both being protected. You know, God built a hedge of protection around us, but he's also protecting my heart from the temptation of the evil one who wants to pull me out of God's protection. We need both because oftentimes we're our own worst enemies and the problems of our life are our own doing. We're very, very good at it. Here, here, here's the problem with our prayers. I'm just telling you right now. The problem with our prayers is that God wants a relationship with us. We want God to be a resource for us. I'm, I want God to be a resource that I can tap into to get the things I know I need in life. God's saying, I don't want that. I want a relationship with you. I don't want to just be a resource you tap into when you need me. I want a relationship with you. There's, there's two parts of this. And so what he's trying, what Jesus is trying to show us is a prayer of a relationship, not a prayer where God is my resource that I can tap into and get what I need when I need it. And then, okay, I won't bother again, God. In Proverbs, it says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. This is everything that Jesus is teaching us about God. I'm going to sum it up and I'm going to end, but this is what Jesus teaches us. First of all, that God is great and God is holy. These are all names of God. If you wonder what the Hebrew is here, these are all names of God. God is great and God is holy. God leads us. That's what we're asking to do, his will, because he's leading us. He's leading us. He provides, Jehovah Jireh, absolutely he provides. God is merciful, but God is also just. God protects us, and all of these things would not matter at all, except he does them all because he is our dad who loves us. Would you all please pray?